For weeks, massive protests have erupted across Israel. Protesters are chanting, democracy. On Monday, Israel's parliament passed a law that limits the Supreme Court's ability to strike down certain government policies. It's a move that many Israelis see as a blow against democracy. It's a, one of the most contentious times uh, domestically that Israel has ever experienced. That's Steve Hendricks, Jerusalem bureau chief for The Washington Post. The opposition proposed literally thousands of uh, amendments sort of trying to stop this train. But the coalition brushed past all that. They finally got the bill to its final uh, reading in the parliament yesterday after a very rancorous session in which opposition members were were screaming, shame, shame. They began the final vote, and the opposition all walked out. So the final passage was just those 64 votes for the coalition and uh, zero votes from anyone else. For a country without a constitution, it might be in the middle of a constitutional crisis. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Will Oremus. I'm a tech writer for The Post, and I'm your guest host today. It's Wednesday, July 26th. Today on the show, what has led to the historic protests that have divided Israel? And what's next for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Steve, in recent months, we've seen widespread protests across Israel, some of the largest protests in the country's history. What's happening in the country right now? People in Israel are a little bit in shock. This uh, piece of this judicial reform measure that the government has been working on and trying to enact for months in the face of really quite unprecedented protest actually passed. This is a project that comes from Israel's right wing and from the religious and sort of ultra-nationalist parties who are a part of the government that took power at the end of last year. For years, uh, this part of the Israeli political spectrum has complained about the Supreme Court and the judicial system. They say that the courts are biased against their uh, initiatives. They're biased in favor of the more secular coastal elites in the country. And having taken power with some of the most extreme right-wing parties that have ever been in office in Israel— they came out quite quickly and said, we're going to change that. They proposed a range of measures that would all sort of limit the ability of the Supreme Court, independent prosecutors to interfere with government actions. So what's an example of something that the administration would like to do where the Supreme Court had stood in the way, but maybe won't anymore? There's been a series of controversial rulings that have not sat well with this part of the uh, political spectrum here. A number of times they have blocked initiatives to expand uh, Jewish settlements in the West Bank, for example. They have also limited the exemptions to the military draft that the ultra-Orthodox communities really value because most of their young men study Torah in yeshiva. Uh, that's a priority for them over serving in the military. And they have um, worked very hard to sort of gain these special privileges. And yet, in many, many cases, the courts have said, well, that sort of uh, is inequitable. It isn't fair to other citizens of Israel. And they've blocked them. It's familiar to Americans. You know, we see the Supreme Court reviewing government actions and declaring them unconstitutional. 
in Israel, there is no written constitution, but there is a set of norms and basic laws, and that's what the court uh, has felt responsible for upholding. So it sounds like part of what's at stake here is whether Israel is allowed to tilt from a more secular state into being a more overtly religious one. But also, in some ways, this is about sort of the very structure of Israel's government, right? Well, the balance that's been achieved over a number of decades of of the system is very much at play. This government decided to make a big change in the basic law, as they call it, remove some of the court's powers of judicial review. And they did it with just a four-seat majority in the parliament. There's 120 seats. They have 64 of them. So it's really quite a narrow mandate for making this kind of fundamental change. And that's really been the complaint from many of the protesters, international foreign leaders, including President Biden, have said, you really need a much broader consensus for this kind of fundamental, you might say, constitutional change. But this government sort of brushed all that aside, and yesterday they passed the very first piece of this project. All right, Steve, you've been in Jerusalem reporting on this. What have you noticed about who is out in the streets? Is it sort of a cross-section of Israeli society? Are there distinctive features of the groups that are protesting the moves? It's really been quite a remarkable, and I would say a very grassroots uprising against this measure. Today, the streets of Israel erupting into chaos. Israeli police are using water cannons to try to clear the roads. They're cracking down hard, but the protesters say they'll stay on the streets. You see physicians, academics, and teachers. You see, which was quite a shocking development in the spring, the appearance of uh, reserve military fighters, a very, very important and I would say revered constituency in this country. Many of them came out and said that uh, they were so disturbed by what they called, you know, the threat to democracy in this country that they said they would not report for their training if this became law. And, you know, I think we're about to find out how serious they were in that threat. The common thread for the people who oppose this is that they tend to be more secular and they're sort of gathered in the coastal, cultural, and high-tech communities. The people who are in favor of it are more in the interior of the Jewish settlers who live in the West Bank and the very large and growing ultra-Orthodox communities that are sort of scattered around Israel. You mentioned people protesting by declining to participate in mandatory military service. Can they do that? Is that a lever that has been used before in Israel? I think this is effectively unprecedented. So these are, by and large, not active duty soldiers. The people who have stepped forward and actively engaged in the protest and said that they would disengage from training are the reserve corps. As it was explained to me, you need the basic army and the military to be ready. You need the reserve corps to win a war. And so if an emergency happens, and it happens quite a lot in Israel, these are the pilots and the fighters and the officers who are on standby and come in uh, and take up arms. And they're the ones who are saying that, they're not saying they would not report for an emergency, but they are saying that they would decline to report for, you know, this very important training. And remind us, what is the structure of the Israeli government? What are the major branches and governing bodies? Well, it's a one 
cameral legislature. We have a House and a Senate in Washington. Uh, this is a country that has only one chamber in parliament, no written constitution, and therefore they have a set of laws, common law basically, that have emerged that lets the Supreme Court be kind of the other balance of power here. It's a parliamentary system uh, akin to Britain's where voters elect parties, not individual politicians. And the leader of usually the largest faction is the prime minister in this case, as it has been for uh, more than any other leader in Israel. It's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Always been a very conservative member of the right-wing Likud party. He is a bit of a mystery when it comes to the particulars of this judicial reform project. It's never been a real priority of Netanyahu's. He didn't campaign on it or make it a, a big priority in previous governments. But in this case, he's very much publicly supporting it, largely, it would seem, because it's a dear, dear project to some of the more extreme parties that he needed to partner with in order to have a majority and form the coalition government. But, you know, we understand, and there's a lot of reporting that suggests that he's very uncomfortable with with the degree of blowback, with the international criticism, with the potential effect on Israel's economy, and certainly the concerns that these military reservists threatening not to show up for training could amount to a security concern for Israel. So Netanyahu has been this giant of Israeli politics for a long time. But your reporting suggests that he may not be the only one pulling the strings at this point. Well, there's no question that this judicial reform project was a priority for some of his parliamentary partners more than it was for him. The big question in Israel right now is, what does he really want and what is he able to do with just a four-seat majority in the parliament any one of these parties could bring the government down if they objected to compromises that he were to make or decisions to slow or stop this judicial reform project. So uh, we just don't know. I've talked to a lot of political observers who really are kind of perplexed to understand exactly where Netanyahu falls on this. Is he driving this? Is he letting it happen? Is he, as one person said, you know, is he held hostage by these extreme partners? Or is he sort of a savvy Machiavelli who is very happy to reduce the power of the court and sort of push Israel towards an autocracy? After the break, the rise of Israel's far right and what it means for the country's relationship with the United States. We'll be right back. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the far right in Israel. What is it that they want, and why are they becoming increasingly influential in mainstream Israeli politics today? Israel has such an interesting and changing history. It was actually founded, you know, in this century by socialists coming out of Europe. The first ethos of the country was very heavily socialist. We are all familiar with the kibbutzes, communal living. There's a national health care service in this country. But alongside that has arisen a couple of important threads. One are the ultra-Orthodox, 
much more fundamentalist in their religion. There is a strong belief there that studying the Torah and praying and sort of preparing the world for the arrival of the Messiah is their first priority. They don't necessarily think having an Israeli state is the most important thing in their lives. They have not been big participants in civic life. That's begun to change. They're the fastest growing population in Israel. They vote very much in organized blocks, you know, sort of at the direction of their parties and their rabbis. And they have outsized political influence here. Benjamin Netanyahu has turned to those parties for many, many years to provide him you know, with part of the majority he needs. So that is an increasingly influential segment of society. The other are what scholars here called religious Zionists. And these are people who do very much believe in the project of Israel returning to the Middle East. And they are the ones who are driving the settlements in the West Bank and the expansion of settlements, believing that they have a biblical mandate basically to occupy that land, all the land of the region between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. And of course, that's at the heart of the Palestinian conflict, the occupation of the West Bank. And those two groups have both been on the rise in recent decades. Israel overall has very much lost that left-leaning socialist nature in the population at large. And the right wing here is ascendant. And that's why they're so frustrated that as they have gained popular support and won elections, they still find the judiciary and the Supreme Court to be an impediment, you know, to their views of what the government should be doing here. Now, Israel also has a significant Arab minority. How is this reach for more power by Netanyahu and the right wing affecting them and their role in Israeli society? Oh, well, they don't like it. Uh, they have an interesting attitude when you talk to Palestinians who live in Israel. It's about 20% of the country. They recognize that the Supreme Court has been, at least occasionally, a bulwark against some of the proposals that would be more difficult for them to live with. On the other hand, there's a view that, like, none of the Israeli government is serving their interest, neither the parliament nor the courts. And there's a sort of resignation or apathy about some of these big issues that are swirling around. Uh, the Palestinian communities in Israel are enduring a, a really horrific crime wave. And so I, I get the sense that it's really, they sort of look at it and they recognize that it probably doesn't mean anything good for them, but it doesn't really feel like one of their top priorities. Right. So maybe there wasn't that trust in institutions in the first place to be outraged when they're being eroded. But what about the relationship between the United States and Israel? The United States has obviously been a close ally of Israel for decades. How is the Biden administration and how are other factions of American politics reacting to what's going on there? Well, it really would be impossible to overstate how important the U.S. relationship is to Israelis. It's really constantly referred to, it appears in the press all the time, Almost every major issue will include a line or two about how would this play in Washington. So the relationship is sort of acknowledged to be one of Israel's most important assets, really, because their relationship is strong and has been for so long. President Biden has made it clear repeatedly in a way that I think is pretty unusual and publicly that he would prefer Netanyahu to slow this process, to seek greater consensus, 
There was a lot of discomfort among analyst and security types here when Netanyahu kind of ignored that. There's just some questions coming up, like how far can he go before there is damage to the relationship? And everyone is very aware that there's a lot of disapproval among American Jews about this. It still remains a political imperative, it feels like, in the United States to express your support for Israel, in in many quarters at least. And people here pay very close attention to where that needle sits. Yeah, there's always the risk for Americans of analogizing everything to our politics, and I don't want to do too much of that. But I I do wonder if some on the right in the U.S. actually might have some sympathy for what Netanyahu is trying to do there. Oh yeah, no, you're 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 right on. I mean, there's a lot of similarities in the the feeling of parts of this government and the Trump movement in in the U.S. Trump was beloved here by the right wing, you know, of Israel. There's very much a sense that what is happening here, a sort of division between the elites and what you might say are more more working class people, a sense that the government and the courts are working just for the one side and not the other. It does feel like it plays very much into the to, to the wider global populist rise of the right and the conflicts with the cultural left-leaning elites. You mentioned earlier that this isn't necessarily all Netanyahu's agenda, right? He's being steered in part by the more right-wing elements of his coalition. What does that say about Netanyahu's standing as a leader in the country and and his personal power and popularity with the Israeli people? Well, there's a lot of questions about that. I mean, there's a couple of things we know for sure. He's 73 years old. He, you know, he has been in power a long time. He turned up this week in the middle of all this with an emergency cardiac procedure. He was rushed to the hospital on very early Sunday and had a pacemaker installed. So, yes, you do get a sense that, you know, after long last, you know, we're, we're certainly closer to the end of the Netanyahu era And I believe that's influencing the dynamic. There are members of his party and factions within his party that have their eye on succession and next things. And I believe that sort of compels them to cultivate the base, which has become more conservative and more populist in in recent years. On the other hand, Netanyahu has proven to be a very savvy politician. He tends to kind of veer from crisis to crisis, and he tends to get out of them. So there are a lot of old Netanyahu watchers who wouldn't be at all surprised if he came out of this with what he wanted. Remember, he's on trial for political corruption. He has a much more contentious relationship with the courts and with prosecutors than he had in the past. So, you know, it could be that two things are true at once. He's not able to stop this process, but he does not mind seeing the courts have their wings clipped. What can we expect to see in Israel unfolding in the coming days or months? Well, I think we'll see the protests continue and very possibly get much larger. Immediately, a whole raft of challenges to this change in the Supreme Court were filed with the Supreme Court. So we're looking at sort of a perplexing puzzle of whether the Supreme Court can overturn an attempt to reduce its own powers. The opposition is not going away. Everyone's watching the stock market and the Israeli currency have both plummeted since the vote on Monday. 
Nothing feels like it's going to be resolved quickly and nothing feels calm here, but I would hesitate to make any kind of prediction about where it's going to go. Steve Hendricks, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Tanya Chavla and Eliza Dennis. It was edited by Monica Campbell and mixed by Sam Baer. If you want to show your support for the show, the best way to do that is to subscribe to The Washington Post. And then you get full access to the kind of essential international reporting that you just heard here. You can do that by going to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Will Aremus. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.